Well, I hope that you arrived with a Bible in hand. If you did, I invite you to find the book of Daniel, the eighth chapter. We continue our journey through this great Old Testament book. I just want to tell you, if anyone thinks they're a great biblical scholar, they just need to engage with Daniel for a little bit, and you'll get a good dose of humility because he will leave you scratching your head. And after struggling through chapter 7 last week, we're going to turn our attention to chapter 8. One of the interesting things about Daniel is the change in language that occurs. The book of Daniel begins being written in Hebrew. Chapter 2, verse 4 it switches to Aramaic. But as we head into chapter 8, it transitions back into Hebrew, which seems kind of appropriate because the last four chapters of this book have to do with the future history of Israel. And so for it to be written in their native tongue just kind of makes sense. But as we read chapter 8, we discover that Daniel focuses on three main characters. A ram, a goat, and a little horn. And, you know, it it has a lot of similarities to the vision of chapter 7 that we looked at last week. Some of this just seems to be crystal clear, and other parts of it are a little bit not so clear. But I want us to read this chapter and then look at it just asking the Spirit of God to give us insight, to give us understanding, to give us wisdom as we look at these words together today. Daniel chapter 8, we're going to begin our reading at verse 1 and we're going to read the entire chapter and again I say I know it's a lengthy reading. And if physically it is painful or difficult for you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, certainly we are not asking you to suffer. But if you can and you will, I would invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Holy Word as we honor our Heavenly Father today. Daniel chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Uli Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. 
Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of hosts. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Yule calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep and my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because of the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Would you pray with me? Father, there are times when we open your word, we read it, and we struggle. But even in those moments, we know that that with which we struggle makes perfect sense and is absolutely clear to you. So I pray that this morning as we spend these moments together that you would give us understanding, that you would help us not only to understand the truth of the vision, but you would help us to understand the application to our lives in this moment.
Father, I pray that as that occurs, you would speak to our hearts, that you would draw us toward yourself, that you would give life to those who are dead in sin, healing to those who are hurt, hope to those who are hopeless, that we might go forth rejoicing, knowing that our God is on the throne and that he is in control of all things at all times. Father, speak to our hearts, for we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Before we, we dive in, let me just give you again a reminder. Our God is sovereign. He is in control. He is on the throne, and he is more powerful than any ruler that this earth has seen or ever will see. The tyrants and the rulers of this age are raised up to power because he grants them authority for a time. And when they are brought down, it is he who brings them low as well in his perfect timing. If you have doubt of that, and I know that there are those who do, they think that uh, man is much more in control than what he really is, I would just encourage you to make a quick jot-sided note right here that you can go back and look at Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21. Because if you will look in Daniel chapter 2 verse 21, you will read that it is he who sets up kings and deposes them. God is the one who is on the throne. God is the one who is in control. And surely a God who is powerful enough to move and maneuver the nations as he sees fit, is powerful enough to take care of the problems in my life and yours. That's what we need to grab a hold of here, my friends. And with that truth in mind, I want us to begin to look at these things that occur in chapter 8. If you've got your Bible open, I want to encourage you, keep it open. Not leaving chapter 8. We're just going to stay right there. We're going to park on it. We're going to take it apart, all right? We begin at the beginning of chapter 8 with Daniel's vision. We start with Daniel's vision. It's okay. I can talk right over the top. All right? Daniel chapter 8, we start with his vision. Now, he starts out by telling us the time frame. This was in the third year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. That means that this is two years later than the vision we looked at last week in chapter 7. Location. He says he sees himself in Susa, the capital of Persia, by the Ule Canal. And in his vision, he sees a ram and a goat. This is where it all begins. And I just want us to take a moment and look at this. So much of this is similar to what was last week. So you should be thinking to yourself, he can do this quick and we can be done early. Amen? Okay, we'll take all day. Here's how it starts out. He begins by seeing first the ram. And he tells us about the ram in verses 3 and 4. And, and this ram is, is with two horns is the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, two nations joined together to make this great empire. That's the reason that there are two horns. He, he says both of the horns were long. Both of them were powerful. Both of them were frightening. Both of them were intimidating. But one horn was longer than the other. That is to signify the fact that the Persian kingdom, the Persian nation, was actually more powerful than the Mede nation. Oh, but this, this ram was powerful. He went in multiple directions. Everywhere that he went, he claimed victory. Look at what it says. He charged toward the west and the north and the south. 
No animal could stand before him. No kingdom could stand against this empire. None could rescue from his power. He was overwhelming. He did as he pleased. He took nation after nation, city after city, putting people to death, placing people in subjection, growing and becoming stronger. And strong. But can I just tell you something that happens with nations and empires when they grow and grow and they become stronger and stronger? They also become more and more arrogant, self-centered, and believing more and more in their own power and authority. Oh, and this ram, I mean, it was happening. This ram became a place of corruption, a place of sin. Under King Cyrus, it grew to be a great empire. Everyone that they encountered, they overcame. But after Cyrus, there became a descent among the leadership and the royalty of this empire. Daniel says, suddenly I saw a goat. Now, you know, I'm, this is where I'm scratching my head in my office. I just don't picture goats being more powerful than rams. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it's because I've never seen a pickup that says goat on the front. You know? It says ram, got horns. You know? Not so. Not in this vision. My friend, in this vision, the goat is more powerful than the ram. I want you to look at verses 5 through 8 here as Daniel unpacks. He says, suddenly I saw this goat with a prominent horn between his eyes. Now, you and I both know that's not how you picture a goat, is it? With one horn between its eyes. But that's what this goat looks like. He says it comes from the west. Now understand where he's at. If you're looking at a map, he's in Babylon. He's in the Medo-Persian Empire. He's in Susa. He is over here in the area that we know today as Iran, Iraq. This beast comes from the west. It's the Greek Empire. Coming from the west. And he describes it in such an amazing way. It says he crossed the whole earth without touching the ground. With incredible speed, he flew across the landscape. Coming to attack the Persian Empire. He says the attack was incredible. This is the army of Alexander the Great. It would have seemed impossible to anyone who had not yet seen it happening that this army of Alexander could come and simply overwhelm the army of the Persians in a moment and destroy their power entirely. But that is exactly what happened. Alexander is the first king. He is that prominent horn between the eyes that came with such speed and such fury and such rage that he shattered the two horns of the goat or of the ram. It's an amazing thing. I, I mean, to, to think all of this through and realize God has ordained all of this. It's not that it happened. It's not that Alexander was that great. It's not that Greece was that great. It's that God said, this is how events will unfold. The ram was powerless. His destruction, we're told, was complete. He was trampled. None could rescue the ram from the power of this goat. And then he goes on and he tells us in verse 8, the goat became very great. But at the height of his power, when, when this empire, when the Greek empire was at its pinnacle, when it reached the height of its greatness, 
the horn was broken off. Alexander the Great perished. And probably you've heard or read about Alexander to some degree. The history is, is there for any who will study it. Alexander became despondent because there were no other empires to overcome. There were no other nations to conquer. There were no other peoples to overcome. He didn't know what to do with himself. If he was not leading his army, if he was not running into battle. And so he began to drink. And he began to slide into a despondency and debauchery. And at 33 years of age, Alexander the Great died. He had four generals who had led his armies, and those four generals took the empire of Greece that, that had been founded under the army of Alexander, and they divided the empire up into four parts. Again, I can unpack the history, but why? You're not going to make sense out of the, all the names that I struggle to pronounce. You can read it for yourself. It's there. It's easy information. So let's fast forward and move. They've formed four empires, many empires. Small kingdoms out of the one great kingdom. None of them is nearly as great as what the Greek empire itself had been under Alexander. Time flies by. And all of a sudden in verse 9, Daniel tells us out of one of them, out of one of those four kingdoms, came another horn. It started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Now, what would Daniel call the beautiful land? Israel, the promised land, the land of his people, the land that he had been removed from as a young man, the land that he longed in his heart to return to and knew that God had promised one day his people would come home. That's what he is referring to when he talks about the beautiful land. And so this little horn spreads south and east and comes down and now rules and reigns over the land of Israel. And it grew until it reached the hosts of the heavens, trying to become as great as God. It reminds me of an angel we have read about before who fell, but wanted to be equal to, as great as God. He threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him. The place of his sanctuary was brought low. Let's just stop right there and just go ahead and toss it on the table because some of you who are Bible scholars are already saying, oh, I know who this is. And some of you are saying, what in the world is Daniel talking about? Bible scholars across the generations have agreed that this description of this small horn is the description of King Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV came out of the Seleucid Empire. I believe he was the eighth king in that empire. Generations had passed by. These empires had grown. They had shifted. The powers had, had moved around. Antiochus caused great persecution for God's people and hardship for the nation of Israel. Some of you are saying, I don't know anything about any Antiochus IV. Perhaps you've heard about him or read about him as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes 
was an incredibly wicked man. First off, let's just deal with the name Epiphanes. It's a name he gave himself. It means God manifest. He was saying to people, I'm the king and you will worship me as if I am God because I'm not sure I'm not. Another meaning of that word, Epiphanes, is, is the illustrious God. And so I'm just going to put it to you like this. He had a pretty high opinion of himself. Now, his enemies didn't have such a high opinion of him. They didn't refer to him as Antiochus Epiphanes. They referred to him as Antiochus Epimenes. The word Epimenes means madman. So where he's calling himself Antiochus the God, they're calling him Antiochus the madman. But this is the man that is known in history for desecrating the temple of Jerusalem. He's the man who went into the temple, went to the altar, and sacrificed a sow, an unclean animal, upon the altar in the temple. This brings an end. This puts a halt to the Hebrew sacrifices morning and evening at the altar because now the altar is defiled. It is unclean. After that sacrifice was offered, after they burnt it, he took the broth from that burnt sow and he took it and sprinkled it throughout the entire temple complex, thus desecrating the entire temple area of the Hebrew nation. He'd say, well, man, that's awful. What else could he possibly do? Oh, he's not done yet. Then he set up a statue to the pagan god Jupiter inside the temple. The people of Israel have no place to worship. They have no place to offer their sacrifices. They have no place to go and meet God as they believe and know that they are supposed to. Now understand something about Antiochus Epiphanes. As we see here, him here in chapter 8 is the little horn. This is not the same little horn that was in the vision of chapter 7. In chapter 7, the little horn represents the Antichrist of the end days. Antiochus Epiphanes is not that man. But until that man arrives, there is no one, I, I believe that this is part of the correlation, there is no one who has lived or will live who is going to be as vile, as wicked, or as contemptible as what Antiochus is in the mind of God because of his defiling of the temple. Did this happen? Mm -hmm. It did. It happened. The, the very thing that Daniel is talking about here comes to pass. Antiochus came to power in 170 B.C. And it was somewhere around the time of, of 168 B.C. that he desecrated the temple. And people say, well, how, how does this all fit together? What about this 2,300 evenings and mornings? How, how did 2,300 days fit into this? That's, that's almost seven years. It's not seven years, folks. It's three and a half years. See, but it says 2,300. Yes, it does. 2,300 evenings and mornings. 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices. Two per day. This is not seven years. This is about three and a half years. Okay? It was 168 when he defiled the temple, and it was 164 B.C., about three and a half to four years later, when the temple was re-consecrated. 
And I know a lot of people say, well, I'm not sure about that. I haven't, I haven't read the history on that. You can read the history on it. And if you want to know about this, I'm just going to tell you right now, go find the book of Maccabees. And some of you are going to say, well, where in the world do you find it? I've never heard of the book of Maccabees. Carl, where's the book of Maccabees found? I see you over there talking to me. The Apocrypha. Additional literature that is of benefit to read, although it is not canonical, and on an equal level with Scripture. But great history. And the Maccabees led a rebellion. They led a revolt. And they took the Temple Mount back and they reconsecrated the Temple. Now, I just want you to understand something. More than 165 years later, Jesus would say that there was still another future event that would occur at the temple. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, he explains this happened historically, but there is another event yet to come. So friends, don't think that Israel's out of the woods. They're not. Don't think that God's people are off the hook because we're not. Don't think that we are not going to face enemies throughout our existence until the very end when God comes to claim his bride. We are going to struggle mightily. Daniel's seen all this vision and he's trying to make sense out of this whole thing. And that's where we come to the interpretation. I'm so glad that when God does something like this, he gives us an interpretation. He doesn't leave us alone to try to figure this out on our own. He gives us insight and understanding. If you've got your Bible, we start at verse 15. Daniel is standing there and says, well, I was watching this and trying to understand it. Listen, Daniel, remember Daniel, when we were dealing with Daniel earlier in the book of Daniel, this is the guy who could interpret dreams. Remember? This was the man who could interpret dreams. This was the man that was called in in order to give understanding to the kings and the rulers because he saw what it was that God was trying to reveal. But Daniel's struggling to understand this. In verse 15, he says, There was someone who stood before me, looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulay calling, Gabriel! Ah, that's who that man was. That's no man at all. It's Gabriel. He says, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Explain the things of God to Daniel. Now, just for interest, when Gabriel comes to talk to Daniel, Daniel falls prostrate before him. Humility allows us to understand that when we come face to face with the things of God, we need divine assistance to understand, but we also need to understand that the things of God are not always open completely to us. Now, for those of you who liked Bible trivia, I know some of you were answering questions before the service started. Here's a piece of Bible trivia for you. Daniel is the only book in the Old Testament where the names of angels are given. In the book of Daniel, we meet Gabriel and Michael. That's the only place where we find the names of angels given in the Old Testament. But we will meet them again in the New Testament, particularly Gabriel, over and over and over again. As Gabriel begins to give Daniel understanding, Daniel tells us he was in a deep sleep. In verse 18, he he says, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen later. 
the time of wrath. I'm going to help you to get a hold of this. And he explains the vision. We've already unpacked the vision about the Medo-Persian Empire. That was the ram. Destroyed by the goat. Greece under Alexander the Great. The four horns that grew up when the great horn was broken off. Many empires that were ruled by Alexander's generals and the little horn that sprang up in the Antiochus Epiphanes, the eighth ruler of the Seleucid dynasty. I want you to see something. I want you to understand that God does not just pour out wrath on people indiscriminately. On a regular basis, I have people ask me questions. I get the same questions over and over and over again. But one of the questions that I have asked of me many, many times is, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, I can give you the short answer. I don't know. I can give you the long answer, but not today. But I am going to show you something, and I want you to understand it. In chapter 8, we are reading in the interpretation about the time of wrath, about Antiochus Epiphanes, about the difficulty that he creates for God's people and in God's kingdom and in God's temple, and how he grows and he prospers even in his wickedness and the destruction that he brings and that he renders But before you get hung up in why is God allowing all this to happen to his people, the answer is already there and we've already read it. So in case you missed it, I'm going to back you up and make you park there for just a second. It's at the beginning of verse 12. Do you see it? Because of rebellion. And let me just explain something. When people ask me, why does God let bad things happen to good people? There's something you need to define for me. What do you call good people? Is that by human standard or by divine standard? See, we tend to classify good people by what we think is good. God has a different way of looking at humanity. He described that over in the book of Romans where he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He tells us repeatedly in Scripture, there is none who is righteous, not even one. So when we say, why do bad things happen to good people? We need to understand something. There are no good people. Well, so that's not very nice. We're moral and we're upright and, and, and we, we try to do good things and we, that's awesome. And I encourage you to do that. Redouble your efforts. Do more than you've done. But understand that still does not bring you to the place of standing in righteousness before God. The only way to stand in righteousness before God is through Jesus Christ, His Son. But before you get too depressed by that, recognize this truth. 
Even the seemingly powerful Antiochus, according to verse 25, will be destroyed. And I want you to see what it says at the end of verse 25. Not only will he be destroyed, but he will not be destroyed by human power. Again, I remind you, it is God who raises up and it is God who brings down. It will be God who exalts this ruler and God who brings him to his conclusion. Now, I very quickly want to get to the end of this because I can tell by looking at you, you want me to get to the end of this. So let's move quickly to the last two verses. Can we do that? Because, you know, to me, the last two verses where I found myself saying, here's the application. Here is the application. If you're struggling to figure out, what do I do with this chapter? What do I do with this vision? What do I do with what Daniel says here that has any application to me living in 2019? Well, here it is. In 2019, let me just ask you a question. What do you do when life makes you sick? Now, I, listen, I, I'm serious. Have you ever had that experience where you've seen something or you've heard something or maybe a piece has gone across in front of you on the news and literally you feel like your stomach is up here? I mean, several years ago when we were watching on the Internet I say we loosely, I didn't, I refused to watch. But men were being beheaded by fighters on the other side of the world and it was being posted on the internet and people were watching it by the millions. If that doesn't turn your stomach, I don't know what will. We've, we've seen in recent days over and over and over again the drawings, the videos, the renderings of what occurs when abortions take place. If that does not turn your stomach upside down and place it in your throat, something's wrong. I mean, there are times when we just look at our world, we look at what man does to man. How we treat one another, the lack of, of caring, the lack of love, the care, lack of concern. And it's, it's sickening. It's nauseating. And folks, that's where Daniel was at after watching this vision. I mean, I, you're saying, what? Well, it's just a couple of animals. These are nations. These are people in conflict. These are nations where men in armies are dying by the hundreds and by the thousands and perhaps by the tens or even hundreds of thousands. It is brutal. It is bloody. It is a slaughter. We don't know how much of that he saw or didn't see. What we do know is that he saw the images that are described for us. But I want you to see these last two verses. Gabriel speaks to Daniel in verse 26, and he says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given you is true. What's going to happen is going to happen. It concerns the distant future. Listen, again, here, here it is. God is in control. Yes, bad things are going to happen. Bad things do happen. But don't think for a minute that God has lost control. 
He allows evil to have its moment. He allows mankind to have his opportunity to make decisions, to make choices, to choose right or wrong, good or bad, evil or righteousness. But he's still very much in control. And he will judge in his own time. Verse 27, man, I found myself saying, Daniel, I'm with you here, big guy. He says, I, Daniel, was exhausted. And I lay ill for several days. It made me, it made me sick. I just want to tell you something. If you look at the world through the eyes of God, it'll make you sick. Take a lesson from Daniel. When life makes you sick, when you're so disgusted and fed up that you think, I'm done. I'm just going to lay here. I'm going to curl up in a fetal position. I'm not going to open the window. I'm not going to open the blinds. I'm not going to get out of bed. I'm not going to deal with this nonsense. I'm through. Take a lesson from Daniel. I was exhausted and I lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. Folks, we're supposed to be about the king's business. Amen? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we serve a king. We serve a risen king. We serve the almighty king. We serve the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is not adequate for us to say, I'm just going to lay here and curl up because I don't like the way things are and it makes me sick. I can't stand to look at this. No, we need to be about the king's business. And this is what Daniel shows us. Get up and get with it. It doesn't make it go away. Did you see how he ended this chapter? I was appalled by the vision. It didn't go away. I didn't forget what I'd seen. I didn't stop being aware of it. It was beyond understanding. Y'all remember what I told you last Sunday morning? Here's Daniel addressing a Deuteronomy 29-29 thing. A God thing. Daniel says it was beyond understanding. Now this is one of those you jot down because I told you last week you need to get familiar with this verse. Deuteronomy 29-29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us belong to us and our children forever. What Deuteronomy 29-29 says is there are things that you're going to understand and there are things that are never going to make sense to you. It's okay. You don't have to understand everything. God's got this. God's got this. My friends... These types of of, of visions, these types of scenes that play out before us, these, these days when the earth and the world we live in makes us sick, when those days come, be at peace. God's got this. There is no power more powerful than He. There is no authority that He has not given And there is no ruler in this world, nor will there ever be, that does not answer to our sovereign God. Today, would you like to experience victory over sin? He is the conqueror. He is the one who took on sin at the cross, defeated it, went to the grave, knocked it out, and lives today.
Would you like to experience freedom from fear? He is our protector. He is our shield and our buckler. He is the one who stands between us and all that is evil and wicked. Would you like to discover what abundant life is? He is our provision. He's the one who gives to us everything that we need and gives us life eternal and abundant. The sovereign God who rules and reigns has provided for our forgiveness and our salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And when you receive His gift of eternal life, the Holy Spirit comes. He takes up residence in your life and everything changes. You'll never be the same again. You'll never be alone again. And you'll never have to fear what lies before you. If you're here this morning and you're his child, you belong to him, you've been born again. You know that you have eternal life. You know that you belong to to God through his son, Jesus Christ. You ought to be rejoicing. You ought to be rejoicing because, you see, even though the world is out of control, we know who's got it under control. Are you a child of God? Have you been born into his kingdom? Rejoice. Help's on the way. It's already here with us. But if you're not, and you don't know him, I want to ask you a simple question. Why would you want to face the wrath of God alone without God carrying you through it? Today. Today he offers life. Today he invites us. He calls us to come in repentance, by faith, to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. I've had people tell me, poor preacher, it just sounds so complicated. It really isn't. But if it's so complicated that you're confused by it, I'd love to visit with you. I'd like to explain it to you. I I would never put anybody on the spot. I'd never embarrass anybody, but... But I can show you from the Word of God how you can be born again. How you can become a child of the King. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because I can give it. It's because it is His free gift offered to mankind through Jesus Christ. Again, I remind you. We may be looking in Daniel... And you might be saying, well, how in the world do you get gospel out of that? Remember last week? The Son of Man came and was seated by the Ancient of Days. He's already there. All we've got to do is see Him and respond to Him. This morning, I invite you. If He's calling you, come to Him. Cry out to Him. And let him do a miracle in your life. You don't have to worry about this crazy world you're living in. Because I'm going to tell you right now, God has got it under control. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of of commitment, of surrender. I I want you to understand, anytime we open the Word of God, and we explain to you what the Word of God is saying and how it's speaking to us, we want to give you the opportunity to respond to that Word. And it may be that the Spirit of God has taken the Word of God to, today and has spoken to your heart. You know, you know whether you have a relationship with Him or perhaps if you need a relationship with Him. I want to invite you, if you know you need a relationship with Him, come. Come and receive what He offers. I won't embarrass you. I won't put you on the spot. 
But I'd love to visit with you and pray with you about how you can become a child of the King today. Perhaps you're my brother or sister in Christ. You're saying, I've, I've already done that. I did that a long time ago. Great. Are you walking with him? Are you trusting him? Are you leaning into him even through the struggle times of life? Are you trying to hold it up on your own? I'm just going to give you a heads up. You can't do it. None of us can. But through him, we can make it. Are you looking for a place to serve, a place to worship, a place to be a part of the body of Christ? If God's brought you here, this is where you're supposed to be. I invite you to come. Become a part of this body. However God is speaking to you, whatever he's leading you to do, let him have his way. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Lord, how challenging it is for us to, to look back through time and to realize that someone was looking forward through time. And out there in the middle, we meet. And we see the events that to us are history and to him were prophecy. And Father, we can dwell on historical figures and kings and kingdoms. <laughs> or we can get right to the point and say that out there in the middle of it all, we find a redeemer. We find a savior. We find the one who came to give life to man in the midst of our sinfulness. Father, I rejoice in that knowledge. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for saving me. And Father, I pray now for us in this room who are gathered here. Your spirit has spoken. Your word has been shared. And now it comes down to what are we going to do? What are we going to do with what we've heard? What are we going to do with the tugging in our hearts? What are we going to do with the need that we have? Father, I pray right now you'd teach us, help us to lean into you, to receive your gift, to live in all of its glory, that we might be used to serve your kingdom. Now, Father, I ask you, your word's been shared, your spirit has spoken and is speaking. Give us ears to hear and a willingness to respond in obedience. Have your way in each of our lives, Father, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.